Well, let me open us up in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. We once again thank you for the, the privilege of coming together as men and to study the Word of God. Father, I just pray this morning that you would uh, take this uh, short series that we're beginning and use it to open our eyes to show us just how much we need you. And especially as men, Father, uh, we need you in our life. We need your direction. We need your guidance. We need to understand just how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how you are constantly working in our lives through all the various seasons of life, Father, those the good times, the bad times, the ups and the downs, you're always there working in our lives. So, Father, this morning we give you this time together. We pray that you would be glorified and honored by all that we say and do. We thank you for the meal that we've uh, been able to take, and uh, thank you for Barry and his willingness to get here very early every morning and, and, and cook breakfast for us. We pray your blessings on him. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series this week. We just finished our series on um, discipleship, which was then followed up by the commands of Christ. And now we're going to do a four-week short series called The Seasons of a Man's Life. Uh, I think it was Chris Childs, who I love to death, but, you know, he he came up to me last week when he heard that I was going to do this, and he says, oh, so you're regurgitating old stuff. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, I would doubt that very many guys in this room actually heard this. You know, I know Ray probably did, and there's a handful of guys who've been here since day one. But um, I am reaching back into my bag of tricks. Um, James? James is next. Yeah, we'll probably hit James. But this is actually a series. It's one of the first series I did when I, I took over the men's ministry here seven, eight years ago. And uh, it's really having to do with the seasons of life that every one of us go through as men. And there's actually seven of these seasons that we could look at. We're only going to look at four. But they really have to do with, as we, it has nothing to do with your age. It, it has to do with just seasons that you naturally go through in life. And unlike the four seasons, they don't always go in sequential order. So that's what we're going to look at, these series of seasons in our lives. They're not cyclical, okay? They don't call, you know, go in a natural order that you have a, se- a season of building and then you have a season of crisis followed by renewal, followed by... They can happen at any time. You can have success followed by failure. You can have failure followed by crisis. You, it, but inevitably, you're going to experience these seasons. They're going to happen. And you've probably already experienced them. They're kind of random, you can't really prepare for them. Um, some of them are going to be things that are natural occurrences. Uh, for instance, you know, last week we prayed for Hans, um, and his uh, his wife Jean passed away, and we had her memorial service this past week. Some of you may not know this, but uh, Hans has lost f- uh, four family members in really the last six months, and then his 24-year-old daughter has been diagnosed with cancer as well. Um, that's a season of life, guys. That's a, that's a time of crisis, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. And they can come when you least expect them, and we need to be ready for them. We need to be prepared for them. So in other words, success can follow suffering. Crisis, crisis can follow quickly, right behind a time of success. You, know, you can be 
at the top of your game, life's great, everything's going wonderful, and then a crisis comes along, and you have to be prepared for it. You have to be ready to face that time in your life. You can have suffering that can lead you into a time where you really begin to grow because of the suffering you're going through, those tough times that can cause us to ask questions and turn to God and say, okay, God, what are you doing in this? Why, why are you doing this to me? Maybe it drives you to your knees or it drives you into the Word, but there are seasons of life that every one of us go through. And here's the key. It's not the fact that you're going through a season of life. It's how you're going to respond to it. It's how do you respond to it. They're going to come... So the key is, how am I going to take this? You know, I've not lost a loved one. Um, My parents are in their 80s. They're still alive. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But I have not gone through that process. I've certainly not lost a child. I've not lost my wife. Some of you guys have. And really, the key is, how am I going to respond to that when it does happen? Uh, how will I respond to that time in my life when a crisis hits me square in the face, a tragedy occurs, you get that phone call you never wanted to get? How will you respond? And the key is, it goes right back to what we've been talking about. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's your walk with Him. It's your journey with Him. How He is living and and directing your life. So here's what we're going to do in the month of May. We're going to cover four of these seasons. And I've kind of picked the ones that I feel like most are most needy for us as men, okay? And I think you'll find them all necessary in your life. The first is going to be the season of rebuilding. Uh, it's not the one we're going to work on this week, but it, it's when we have to kind of rebuild our lives. Maybe something happened, a tragedy, something took place, and we have to go through a period of rebuilding. We're going to look at a season of suffering. When suffering comes along and how we respond to that. We're also going to look at a season of success, which some of you are still waiting for. You know, when's that going to come? Um, It's going to happen. may not be exactly like you want it, but it's going to come. But this week I want to look at the season of crisis and renewal. And I guess the main reason I want to do that is there's a number of guys in this room who are going through some crisis. Um, Maybe it's financial crisis, it's relational crisis, it's your marriage. Uh, For somebody like Hans, it's the crisis of the loss of a loved one, the potential of losing uh, his daughter who's been given really less than a year to live. Um, Crisis followed by renewal. What does that look like? So seasons of crisis, I, I would imagine with this many guys, there's a wide variety of different kinds of crises that we've been through as men. Um, Again, they can be financial. They can be related to your business. They could be related to your family. Um, They run the gamut, don't they? Um, Many of you have been through more than one time of crisis in your life. But the truth is, for all of us, just some some guarantees. They're guaranteed to come. The longer you live, you're going to experience a time of crisis. You'll never live through life and escape it. It's going to happen. Um, yours might be different than mine. I, I know back in the 80s, um, I had my own advertising agency. And um, this was back when the the whole real estate industry was booming in the early 80s. And I happened to have two or three accounts. My primary accounts were all real estate oriented. But then come the mid-80s, that all kind of hit the fan. It just 
disappeared. And all these, you know, real estate companies were flipping land and doing all these great deals. Suddenly it all fell apart and three of my biggest accounts all went under within months of one another, all owing me very large sums of money. And I went from having a very good business to no business and owing great deals of money and having great deals of money owed to me. And it was a major time of crisis in my life. I mean, it, it devastated us as a family. We, we literally, you know, we're eating rice and beans every day because we just couldn't make enough money. And it was a time of crisis. I, I was questioning God. I remember I was going to this church at that time. And I remember coming to church every Sunday so frustrated with, what are you doing, God? What are you, what are you trying to teach me in this? They're guaranteed to come. They're going to happen. And they almost always come unexpectedly. I probably should have had a clue, but I didn't. You know, my world was doing great. And the first glimpse I had was when they started slow paying me. And then they started no paying me. And then it got worse and it got worse. And then suddenly they weren't answering their phones anymore because they didn't exist anymore. Uh, but it came unexpectedly, caught me totally off guard, and they always come uninvited. You know, anybody ever invited a crisis into your life? You know, hey, today looks like a good day to have a crisis. Lord, bring it today. I've got some spare time. No, it's always uninvited. You don't want it to happen. And oftentimes, guys, they're a result of your own mistakes. Um, I would love to blame everything on God. Um, yes, God is in control, but you know what? God's in, enough in control that he sometimes says, yes, Ken, go ahead and do it. I'm going to allow you to do that so you can learn a lesson. And so many times the crises we come into are the result of our own mistakes. Um, you know, you may have a crisis in your marriage relationship with your wife. And nine times out of ten, I think you can probably take a close look and there are guys in the room that will confirm this, that it's probably a big part of you that caused the problem. Your own mistakes, your lack of initiative, your lack of uh, putting your wife first, your lack of leadership spiritually, whatever it may be, you were part of creating the problem. So sometimes it's just our own mistakes. And again, it's not whether you're going to experience this. It is going to happen. It's how you respond to it. How are you going to respond to a time of crisis? You can get angry. You can get frustrated. You can turn your back on God. You can scream. You can cuss. You can, you can do all kinds of things. But your response is the most critical thing in terms of handling any, any of these seasons of life that come your way. Well, I ran across this. Whoa. They're all at the bottom of the page. Seven rules for crisis management. Ran across this in Reader's Digest a number of years ago, and some of it's good, some of it's trash. But this is what they say. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. That's real encouraging. You know, I'm not even sure what that means, hope for the best. It's all going to work out. They'll pay me someday, but they probably won't. Um, look first, then act. What does that mean? Look first, then act. When you do act, act aggressively. I don't know if that means to punch somebody. I don't know. I, I don't know. Seek help. <laughs> yeah. Counseling, that's what you need. Seek help. Don't get locked on a detail. 
Again, these sound really good. I'm just not real sure what they mean. No matter how bad things get, be truthful. Like what? Life stinks? Is that what you're, you know, I hate this? I mean, what, what, what does that mean? And then finally, look for the silver lining. I love that one. Great. Yeah, honey, we're eating beans again. Look for the silver lining. We need more carbs. What? What does this mean? You know, this is this is great stuff, I think, but I don't know if I'm going through a time of crisis, this is what I need. So what I'm really interested in is what does God have to say? And so we're going to look at the life of Elijah the Tishbite. And this is from 1 Kings. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to give you a brief summary of Elijah the Tishbite. If you haven't studied Elijah the Tishbite, you should. Um, real interesting character in Scripture. But just to give you a brief summary, you've got Ahab. He's the king over the northern tribe of Israel, and he just happens to be a lousy king. He's on the northern kingdom. That's his jurisdiction. Israel's divided into two, north and south, and he just he's just a lousy king. We're told in Scripture that he's an evil king. He did more evil than any other king before him, and that's saying a lot because the kings of Israel were, were pretty bad. Uh, they were pretty evil, and yet he's the worst of the lot. He's really bad. So you've got an evil king. Here's some of the things he did. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which basically means he was into idolatry, big time. Jeroboam was another king of Israel. He intermarried, which he wasn't supposed to do, and he married a woman called Jezebel. Um, she was even more evil than he was, as the story goes on. She had actually killed the prophets of God. She was not a believer. She was not an Israelite. So she had gone out and killed the prophets of God. So she, this is an evil woman. Um, you, don't, you really don't hear very many little girls named Jezebel anymore. I mean, if you have a little girl, please don't name her Jezebel. Um, this woman was evil incarnate. I can't imagine being, being, being married to her. Uh, he encouraged the worship of Baal. So he was into idolatry himself. His wife was into it. She had her own priests and priestesses, and he encouraged the worship of a false god. So here he is, the king of Israel. He erects altars to Asherah, the mother of Baal. So, again, this is the, this is the atmosphere that Elijah is going to come into. So Elijah, directed by God, prophesies, prophesies against Ahab in this northern kingdom, and he says, a drought's coming. And it's going to last three years, three very long years. And three and a half years later, God sends him back to Ahab. Now, I've not ever been through a drought, but this is serious stuff. This is an agricultural co- uh, country that nothing is growing. There's no food. It's, it's devastating. And so God sends Elijah three and a half years of drought later to Ahab. Okay, And he's going to challenge the prophets of Baal. There's 850 of them, we're told. And he's going he's gonna to challenge him to a duel. And without getting into great detail, basically he goes to him and he says, listen, we've got to make a decision here, people. Either God is God or your God is God, but we can't have both. So which one is it? And so he challenges him and he says, we're going to both build an altar. You guys build an altar, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to take an ox, you take an ox. We're going to cut it up, you put it on your altar with wood, I'm going to put it on my altar with wood. And then we're going to pray to our God, and we're going to see which God brings down fire from heaven and consumes the, the sacrifice. 850 of them, one of him. So they get to go first. And these guys, 
go through all these machinations and they're cutting themselves, there's blood spewing, they're ranting, they're raving, they're dancing, and there's nothing happening. And I love Elijah because he's making fun of them. Maybe he's asleep. Talk louder. You know, so they're screaming, they're cutting their wrists, and there's, it's just, it's a, it's a show, but nothing is happening. And so finally he says, are you done? You know, you screamed enough? And then he takes, and he has the people pour three times water all over his sacrifice until there's a trench around it filled with water. So he soaked the wood, soaked the ox, it's just drenched, and then he prays. And fire comes down and consumes the, the complete altar, stones and all. And then immediately he turns to the people and he says, who are you going to follow? And he takes the prophets, the 850 prophets of Baal, and he slaughters them all. He kills them all. My kind of guy. You know, he, just, he just wipes them out. Well, as you can imagine, this is going to make somebody pretty upset. Jezebel. So he has this incredible success. He defeats these guys. He kills all the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel vows to kill him. And she says, you're going to be like one of them before the day's up. You know, I'm going to have your head. You're, you're dead meat. You're gone. And so he goes from this incredible period of success to suddenly crisis. Crisis comes pretty fast. So he runs, literally runs for his life. He, he just hauls. He just takes off, and he runs. He's running from Jezebel. He's afraid. And then immediately he goes into this, this period of despondency. He's depressed. He's whining. He's moaning. He's just, woe is me. And he says, God, I just want to die. Take my life now. Just, just take me. And he's wallowing in self-pity. He's having a major class pity party. And I, go back and read the story. It's fascinating how this guy went from, I mean, just bold to suddenly he's just a little whimpering weasel in a matter of just 24 hours. So he's pitying himself. And over and over he goes, you know, I'm the only one that's left, God. It's just me. You know, I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one who stands for you. I'm the only one. I'm, it's, just, it's just a pity party. Well, there's eight, eight things we can learn about times of crisis for believers from this story. And we're going to pick it up in just a second, what happens to his life. Number one, God is in the midst of your crisis. I don't care what your crisis is, God's in the midst of it. What does he do for Elijah? First of all, he sends an angel to him. So here he is, he's, he's having his major league pity party, he's hiding from Jezebel, and God sends an angel. Hey, if I were God, you want to have a pity party? You're going to have it all by yourself. You know, it's like my kids, if my kids want to pout, fine. I just don't want to see your face when you do it. Go to your room and pout. Don't pout in here, but what does God do? God sends an angel. God's in the midst of his crisis. Then he feeds him. Miraculously, he takes care of him. If I were God... Hey, you're going to have a pity party. You're also going to starve till you get your act together. No, that's not what God does. He feeds him. Then he speaks to him. He speaks words of encouragement. He reveals himself to him. It, it, he, he actually passes in front of him, and it's a, in the sound of a still, small wind. That God is there. God's ministering to him. And then God gives him specific direction. Here's what I want you to do. 
You know, when you go through a time of crisis, you're going to need to know, what do I do now? And it's nice to know that God is there, even though you may not feel it, he's there and he's trying to speak to you, he's trying to take care of you, he's trying to feed you spiritually. We just, we need to start to listen. Because God gives the guy a direction and he reassures him. He says, you know what, you're not the only one left. You've said that to me at least three times, Elijah. I'm the only prophet left, I'm the only prophet left. And he goes, you know what, there's 7,000 of them you don't even know about. I got this part handled. You're not alone. You're not the last one. Trust me. He reassures him. Secondly, a time of crisis in your life and my life can follow seasons of success or accomplishment. He was sailing high. Don't you think he was really strutting when that fire came down, consumed the altar? And I would love to have seen the faces of those bloody, beaten prophets of Baal who had slit their wrists and beaten themselves with clubs. And there's, man, we've been praying for. 24 hours and nothing happened and he prays one prayer and fire comes from heaven consumes the entire altar shock awe and he had to be pretty pumped success accomplishment immediately followed by what crisis great victory it says in chapter 18 verse 46 the hand of god was on him he had done something incredible for god but it was followed by crisis number three Times of crisis are often the result of faithfulness. He had done exactly what God told him to do. He'd gone and three and a half years earlier, predicted a drought. Then God said, go to Ahab, here's what I want you to do. He did what God wanted him to do. And yet what happened? Crisis. Have you ever, have you ever had something happen in your life and you go, God, wh- I was doing this for you. Why did you let this happen? What's up with that? Well, Elijah was faithful. You know, he was, all through his life, he was viewed as a troublemaker. The, the people didn't, you know, nobody liked prophets. You know, you weren't invited to parties, you weren't popular, because you had a message nobody wanted to hear. Well, he certainly was viewed a troublemaker by Ahab and Jezebel. He was a thorn in their side, but he was faithful to God. Why? Because he was speaking on behalf of God. The people don't necessarily want to hear the truth. And so he, yet he was just faithful. He just kept saying it and saying it and saying it. And speaking the truth is not popular. It wasn't popular then. It's not necessarily popular now. Because we don't necessarily want to hear the truth. But this guy was faithful. And so when you're faithful, don't assume that, hey, I'm being faithful to God, therefore crisis is not going to come. Not necessarily true. It wasn't true in his life. Times of crisis can cause us to think illogically. You just suddenly start, you know, your, your mind doesn't work like it should. You know, verse 10, he says, I alone am left. It's just me. Poor me. Look at verse 10 of chapter 19, 1 Kings. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He says that at least three times to God. I'm left. I'm alone am left. Verse 14. He says, I've been zealous for you, O Lord. Just me. I'm the only one doing anything for you. So he's, it's all about him. And he's not thinking logically. He's not thinking about God the way he should. Well, times of crisis can lead to self-centeredness. Woe is me. 
You know, you go through these times of crisis and it's just, it's all about you, how bad things are for you. And, and what happens is you walk through life, and even if it's a small crisis, if maybe your day didn't go well or your car didn't start or, you know, I don't know what it may be, but, you know, suddenly it doesn't matter who comes into your path, it's all about you. You know, you, you could have had literally get up them in the morning, your car won't start, and that's the worst thing that happened to you that day. And then you meet somebody later that day who's got cancer. They just found out they got cancer, and you're, you're like, yeah, well, my car wouldn't start. Go live with that. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense, but we're, we're consumed with our problems, and we become self-centered, just like he was. And this guy is, I mean, he's having a major league pity party. He's, he's whining, he's moaning. He wants God to take him home. Just take me now. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that's faithful. Self-centeredness. It's all about me. Well, times of crisis can also cause us to fear. We begin to focus on the circumstances instead of on God. Much like when Peter was, you know, Jesus comes walking across the lake and Peter says, Hey, Lord, if that's you, call me out. Jesus said, Come on out. He walks out, steps out of the water, starts walking across in the storm, and suddenly he takes his eyes off the Lord, starts looking around, and what happens? He immediately begins to sink. Taking our eyes off of God, we become focused on the circumstances. And, you know, it's natural, guys. You know, when, when my business was not doing well and people weren't paying me, it was natural for me to lay awake at night and go, Oh, my gosh. How in the world am I going to pay this money back? How in the world is this going to work itself out? How are we not going to lose our home? How are we not going to have this happen? And and I would build these incredible scenarios, worst-case scenarios. I I know you've done that. You know, if this happens, then this happens. And if that happens, this happens. And if that happens, this happens. And suddenly you're in prison. You know, I would I would lay awake at night and suddenly I'd have myself in prison. My kids are in sackcloth and ashes. My wife is married to another man. And, you know, and nothing's happened yet. Somebody just hadn't paid their bill. But we start to fear, just like Peter. Times of crisis can lead to forgetfulness. You get into a time of crisis and suddenly you forget all the blessings that God has brought. All that God had done for him went out the window as soon as Jezebel said, you're a dead man. I mean, he had just seen God create a miracle. He had just killed personally 850 prophets of Baal, and he's running from a single woman. Now, she was crazy, but he forgot all that God had done. He forgot that God was faithful. And so he goes running and hiding because he forgot about God. He also forgot God's power, that we worship a powerful God. He is in control. He knows what he's doing. There's nothing too big for him, nothing too great for him, nothing that he can't help us make it through. He also forgot that God was a God of provision. Isn't it interesting that when he went and he was hiding, that God provided food, God provided comfort, God provided encouragement, God said, I'm with you. And guess what? There's 7,000 more like you. It's okay. Not everybody's abandoned me. I am in control. We get forgetful, and we forget that God does provide. And what's cool about a a time of crisis, if anything can be cool about a time of crisis, is that God will, in the midst of it, show you little signs of, hey, I'm in control. I'll never forget, I've shared this with you guys before, but 
Because of people going bankrupt on me, they left me owing money to vendors. And one of the vendors I owed the most money to lost as a goose. Um, and he it was a typesetting company. This is back before computers. And this guy uh, called me up one day. And I was getting phone calls from a lot of people. And they weren't the phone calls I wanted. They were usually phone calls from credit, you know, creditors, attorneys, you know, calling me up saying, when are you going to pay? When are you going to take care of this? And I hated it. I just, anytime the phone rang, I'd get knots in my stomach. And this guy called me up and he says, I would like to have lunch with you. I was like, oh, gosh, here we go. And I thought for sure he's going to tell me I'm going to have to take you to court. I'm going to have to sue you. I'm going to take everything you have. And so we go to lunch and we began to talk. And the guy, what he said to me was, I've been watching you during this entire process. And he said, I know you could declare bankruptcy, but you've chosen not to, and that you're trying to pay everyone back. And he said, I've never seen anybody do that. And he said, because of that, I'm wiping the slate clean. You don't owe me anything. And this guy didn't know the Lord. This guy didn't know anything, but he just, he basically just erased the debt. And I remember just crying at the table. I couldn't believe he was doing that. And it was a hand of God showing me that, you know what, I'm bigger than your problem. And he used a lost individual to communicate it to me. God is bigger than we give him credit for, but we forget in the time of crisis. Well, finally, times of crisis can lead to spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Elijah just couldn't see God in the midst of his circumstance. And guys, when you get into these times of crisis, you're going to be tempted to just go blind. You get myopic and you you just don't see God in the midst of it. Even though God was feeding him, God had an angel ministering to him, God was talking to him, God came in the form of a still small voice in the midst of a wind. He was there and yet he couldn't see it. He was speaking, he was talking, he was directing. And sometimes in the midst of crisis, you know, I could have easily walked away from that table when that gentleman said that to me and just written it off to, man, that was lucky. But no, if you don't see God in the midst of that, you're blind. He is at work. And Elijah was blind. Here was God ministering in an incredible way to him, and he just couldn't see it. Because over and over again, he keeps saying, I alone am left. I'm, I'm the last one. Oh, woe is me. Poor me. And God keeps saying, you know what? I'm talking to you here. Do you hear me? Do you see? Do you get it? But he was blind. Well, what's his purpose? Why does God take you and I through a time of crisis? Well, number one, to teach us dependence on him. And if you're like me, I hate this. I hate being dependent on anybody. But God is a funny God. He wants you dependent on him, not you. So he may allow a time of crisis in your life to teach you that you need me. He may do it to teach you humility. Do you know how how humiliating it is to sit across the table from somebody that you owe a large sum of money to and have him say, you know what, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Or to get phone calls from people that you owe money to that you can't pay and you have no way of knowing when you're going to be able to pay. It is humiliating. But you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing because pride comes before the fall. 
Elijah, I think, was suffering from some spiritual pride. I think he was kind of cocky because he had just called down fire from heaven. He had just killed 850 prophets of Baal. He was kind of cocky at this point. And so God was going to bring him down a notch, teach him a little bit of humility. Crisis can also remind us that the battle is real. We, we are in a spiritual warfare, guys. We've been talking about that for years in, in this men's ministry. What you are going through as a believer every day is spiritual warfare, and it is real. And God sometimes has to bring a crisis to remind us that, you know, the enemy's out to destroy us. And he may do it through your work. He may do it through your marriage. He may do it through your kids. But he is out to destroy you. It's real. Just like it was for Elijah, his defeat of the prophets of Baal did not end the problem. He killed 850 of them, but guess what? Jezebel was still alive. Ahab was still alive. Altars were still up all over the country. The battle was still real. Sometimes it's to bring us to an end of ourselves. You know, there's nothing, nothing works better than to where you don't have another trick up your sleeve. I, don't, I, I, I can't go print money. I can't manufacture it. I, I, there's just nothing else I can do. I don't have another option. And you come to an end of yourself, and you quit looking to yourself for the solution, and you have to turn to the Lord and say, now what? Now what? It also to expose our lack of faith. Oftentimes, guys, the crisis is exactly what we need to show us that, you know what? You don't have any faith in me. You don't trust me. And I'm going to prove it to you. You know, when things are going great for me, I think I have all the faith in the world. When, when the bills are paid and the money's there and my kids are not in rebellion or, you know, my wife's, everything's wonderful in my little world, according to my terms, I think I have all the faith in the world. It's when all heck breaks loose that you suddenly realize that I don't think God can handle this. I don't think God's big enough to take care of this problem. I think this problem is going to devastate me and my God. It reveals our lack of faith. It exposes the depth of your faith. How much do you really believe God? How much do you really trust that he can do what he says he can do? Crises are a great way. Crises are a great way of exposing that. Finally, one of the purposes is to catch a glimpse of God himself. And this is probably the most important one. To catch a glimpse of God. God wants to show you and I just how powerful he is. And I would have thought that when Elijah saw the fire come down from heaven, consume the altar, consume the water, consume the stones, consume the rock, you know, consume the ox, man, that's enough. But obviously it wasn't. God wanted him to see him, not the miracle. And see, sometimes, you know, God can, God can do great things. The fact that this guy wiped the debt clean was a miracle of God and I got obsessed with the miracle and I was excited about the relief from that but it didn't necessarily drive me closer to God what God wants is that you begin to see him in the midst of your crisis and you begin to trust him there's another lesson we can learn from Elijah the Tishbite not only did Elijah go through a time of crisis in his life but he also went through a season of renewal a time of renewal and there's, a, there's, there's times in our lives, and they're probably more frequent than, than we'd like to admit, when we need to be renewed. We need to have our battery recharged. Um, and, and I want to just share a couple of things about that because what's interesting about it in Elijah's life is it actually came before his time of crisis. You would think that renewal comes after crisis, and it can. But again, these things aren't necessarily 
sequential or cyclical. His came before, and it's in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And you see in there, this is right after he predicts the drought, and he shared it with King Ahab. Verse 3 says, God speaks to, uh, uh, to Elijah and says, Go away from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And he's, he's telling him to do something. He says, Go away from here. Okay, he's just predicted the drought, and now God says, I want you to leave here. I want you to go away. And he, he's very specific about where he wants him to go. Why? Here's, here's the first key. There are times in my life and in your life where we need times of seclusion and concealment. We need to get away with God. We need to just go and get our batteries recharged. You know, it's interesting that that period of crisis in my life when everything kind of broke up, fell apart, business was going lousy, we had had the opportunity. We used to have um, what we call family camps here at Christ Chapel where we'd go to Arkansas or we'd go at, at this time. This is years ago, but we used to go to uh, Colorado um, and to Trail West Camp, and we would take families and go up there, and we'd be together for a week. And we, we were uh, able to go to one of those family camps and it was interesting there because it was a time of seclusion, a time of getting away with your family. We only had two kids at the time. And, but it was restful. It was relaxing. And the speaker that particular weekend or week, uh, one of the things he talked about was he helped us learn about areas of our lives where we had strengths and weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses I found was pride. That God just kind of opened up a window and said, this is, this is a problem you have. And I rejected it. I argued against it. I you know, said, God, that's not true. It's not me. It's wrong. But the more I prayed about it, the more I realized it during that week. He, he showed me a glimpse into my life, and it revealed for me that the whole reason I started my own company was out of pride. And it's interesting that that time of being away time of seclusion and concealment was going to show me and prepare me for what he was about to teach me not many months after that when everything kind of fell apart and it helped me focus on what the real problem was he got away go away from here he was to hide himself that hebrew word is satar and it means to absent yourself get away from here go over there and get alone hide away hide yourself you see that word a lot in the Old Testament, Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Same word. Hide me. Seclude me. Conceal me. Again, Psalm 31, 20. In the shelter, which is the verb form of the same word, of your presence you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. God wants to sometimes pull us aside and hide us and just sequester us away so he can minister to us. That's exactly what he was doing to him. Why? So he could maintain his inner life with God. Hey, and God knew what was coming. God knew the battle with the Baal prophets. He knew the battle with um, Jezebel. So he wanted to get him prepared and to prepare him for the tests that were coming down the road. Now, you may sit there and say, well, he failed the test. Not necessarily. What if he hadn't had this time alone with God? How much worse would it probably have been? He probably wouldn't have had the guts to challenge the prophets of Baal had he not had this time alone with God. So time alone with God is, is so important for us to be prepared for what's coming. 
But here's the, here's the criteria that came with the command. You've got to get alone. You've got to get secluded. Seclusion is critical. Reminds me of Psalm 46.10. Cease striving and know that I am God. Slow down, shut up, sit down, and learn something about me. Get secluded. We need that time alone with God, free from distractions and temptations of life. You know, quiet times are great, but if your quiet times like mine, it is so full of distractions, and sometimes we just need to literally go away. And you may say, well, I can't do that. Yeah, you probably can. Um, it may take some effort. It may take some plant planning, but we need times where we can just get away. Maybe in your next vacation, rather than going to Disney World and standing with you know 10 million people online, maybe you go to a cabin somewhere where there's no TV, there's no internet, there's no, and you just, you relax, and you spend time reading, you spend time praying. Seclusion. I love what uh, Chuck Swindoll says, to be used of God, is there anything more encouraging, more fulfilling? Perhaps not, but there is something more basic to meet with God, to linger in his presence, to shut out the noise of the city, and in quietness give him the praise he deserves. Before we engage ourselves in his work, let's meet him in his word in prayer, in worship. Man, we can get so busy for God, but not even know him in the midst of our busyness. So what did he say? He said, get, go away. Just go away. Go hide yourself. Get alone. Seclusion. You know, it's interesting. He says, I want you to go to the brook Kareth. This is another spelling of it. And that literally means place of cutting. I want you to go to the place of cutting. And you may think I'm reading a lot into this, but I think sometimes what God wants to do is he wants to get us alone so he can chisel away at our character. That week in Colorado for me was a character chiseling time because I, I, I learned some things about me that I, I had refused to see before. So he says, go to the brook Kareth, go to the place of cutting and let me kind of chisel away and cut the world out of your heart. But the only way that's going to happen is if you get alone with him, if you spend time with him. But spend that time with him, okay? Don't go away just to have a time for yourself, just to go play and, you know. Take some time to be alone with God, to know him, learn more about him, and to learn more about yourself and to develop dependence. I think that's exactly what happened when this guy went away and he went to the brook. He was fed by ravens. He was taken care of by God. God ministered to him. God fed him. Again, spend time with God and get strengthened in the inner life so that you can face whatever's coming your way. Because I don't know what's out there, guys. You don't either. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the rest of the day holds. But how are you going to be prepared for what comes your way if you don't get along with him? So seclusion, but then also protection. Not from Ahab. He had just told Ahab a drought's coming. God didn't send him away to protect him from Ahab, but to really protect him from himself to protect you from yourself and to protect him from a disordered life. Sometimes, man, life just gets so busy, so out of control, and sometimes we need to be protected from just the busyness of life, from spiritual defeat, from just what seems to be one failure after another that we just don't feel good about how we're doing. My quiet time stinks. My prayer life stinks. Nothing seems to be going well. And sometimes God says, you know what, just get alone and let me protect you for a while. Let me feed you for a while. To protect us from pride over our accomplishments. 
Sometimes we get cocky. Sometimes we think, we're, man, we're doing a great service for God. And he says, you know what? Hey, come away for a while. And let me, let me kind of tell you reality. I don't need you. I can do this without you. You guys realize that, that God can do it without you? Isn't that a slap in the face? God, how, how are you going to keep the men's ministry together? Guys, I could get hit by a bus this afternoon, and this, this would go on somehow, some way. God doesn't need me to accomplish anything. It's to protect us from operating by our own wisdom. Get alone with him and let him speak to you and show you that he's a lot smarter than you are. To protect you from fear and to protect you from insensitivity to others and their needs. Get alone. Go to the brook Kareth. Go to the place of cutting. Let me work on you for a while. Hiding ourselves becomes a protection from burnout. Man, I don't know how many times I get so close to burnout. I can't do another thing. I can't say yes to another thing. I can't take on another project. And you just get to the point of I'm just about on the edge. Getting alone with him can protect you from that. It can protect you against living to please people rather than God. Anybody in here a people pleaser? Man, you know, it's just endemic, you know. Oh, I want them to be happy. I want them to think well of me. I want them to be, you know, I want them to pat me on the back. I want them, you know, it's all about him, not other people. It becomes a protection for being preoccupied with the world rather than God. The world rather than God. Well, let me close with this. How often, guys, do you go through seasons of renewal? You know, the, you, you can't control the crisis, but you can control the seasons of renewal. Getting alone with God on a regular basis so that you can renew your strength, renew your faith, renew your dependence on him, renew your awareness that he's even around, and renew your courage to face the crises that are going to come as a part of life. We need to get alone with him on a regular basis, not just your quiet time, not just coming to church on Sunday, not just this, but periodically periods of your life where you say, you know, hey, honey, you know, I I think if you went to your wife today and said, I need two days alone with God, she'd go, great. Now, if you say, I need two days alone to go play golf by myself, she'd probably go, what? I need two days of shopping by myself. No, but if you said, you know, I literally need direction from God. I need to get away for a couple of days. I think most of our wives would go, have at it because they would be blessed by it. We need to seek renewal because the crises are coming, guys. And the only way you're going to be prepared is to get along with him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the fact that you're with us in the midst of crises, Father. You're always there and you're always teaching us and you're always revealing yourself to us. Father, I'm reminded of your word in the book of Isaiah. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Father, help us to be men who turn to you, not just in the midst of crisis, but even when things are going great, that we would get away to that brook where you can minister to us and feed us and challenge us and change us and encourage us and strengthen us for what lies ahead. 
because we don't know what's coming next. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for what you're doing in their lives. Continue your transforming work in my life and in their lives so that we might make a difference in this world in which we live. Bless the rest of this day, Father. May our lives bring glory and honor to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.